Guys, uh, why don't you grab your Bibles and let's get back to, to work on the life of Moses. Uh, we're in the last little paragraph of uh, chapter 4. So you find that and um, we'll resume there. You may recall um, last week we talked about this, this scene where God almost kills Moses for failing to um, um, circumcise his son uh, to apply the, the, um, the sign of the covenant to his son. And, um, and thus his wife has to do it, and she demonstrates a real bad attitude. And as a result, um, she drops out of the narrative. Uh, we don't hear any more about Zipporah until um, the 18th chapter. And I'd like for you to look at that real quick before we read our text tonight. Uh, she reappears in um, chapter 18, and she brings their two boys. Uh, let, me, let me just look at, um, this is chapter 18, verse uh, 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. Um, apparently, after this event that we studied last week, Moses sends his wife home. Now why? I, you know, the text doesn't tell us. Uh, I, I don't know whether it was because he was mad at her or whether he feared taking a Gentile woman into a... Um, a group of Jews in, in Egypt. I, I don't know. But the interesting thing is that she is out of the narrative until the, chapter 18. But when she comes back, um, they meet in verse 5, you'll notice, um, his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Moses is, and the people of Israel are encamped at the mountain of God. I say that to bring you back to our text tonight. Uh, look at verse 27, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness uh, to meet Moses. So he went and met at him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel um, Aaron spoke all the words that the word that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction <clears throat> they bowed their heads <clears throat> and worshiped now guys there's uh, there's one real important I think uh, observation in this paragraph but let me kind of wrap up just some of the the loose ends of the text first of all this mountain of God thing um, if you'll look at chapter three, um, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father and all the priests of uh, Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There it is again. Now, um, gang, some of us get confused over the idea of Horeb and Sinai. Horeb is the name of a region. Sinai is a mountain in that region. So when the text says Horeb, it's referring to Mount Sinai, or sometimes it does use just the, the name of Sinai. But um, there it is the first time. Moses is at the mountain of God, and what happens there? That's where the bush burned, you know, and God spoke out of the burning bush. That happened at the mountain of God. Now, in fact, um, 
we are told in chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent for you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, we come to our text, um, and uh, there Moses meets up with Aaron at the mountain of God. Uh, this mountain of God seems to be quite a focal point. Um, it is where Moses was called. It was where Moses met up with Aaron, or re-met up with Aaron. It was where God gave Moses the law. And it was where Moses got his two boys back and his wife. So a significant location is all the only point I'm making. Um, I'm not sure any, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about where this thing is geographically, um, but I don't think it really matters to us. All of this activity takes place at this mountain of God. It was interesting to me that um, God is working on both ends. By that I mean this. He is up in um, Midian getting his deliverer, Moses, out of there. While at the same time, he's down in Israel talking to Aaron, his brother, and they meet. He's working on both ends. He's working on the giver and the receiver, something like that. He's working on both ends of this situation and brings the two of them together uh, at the mountain of God. Now, um, did you notice that Moses shares all these things with his brother? Um, and then they went and gathered all the, the elders. And verse 30 Aaron spoke. Um, Moses is not speaking there. It's, it's Aaron that is speaking. Remember, because Moses said, you know, I can't speak. I'm not a good public speaker. And so he says, I'll give you Aaron. So Aaron is doing the talking at this point. Now, guys, uh, there's a couple of quick things. Oh, I do want to show you this too. Um, and what I'm about to show you has absolutely no value whatsoever. But I thought I'd show it to you anyway. Um, Moses' two sons, their names are given. Um, he has a son by the name of Gershom, um, and he has a son by the name of Eliezer. Well, um, Moses' uncle is named Gershon, <laughs> and Aaron has a son by the name of Eliezer. See, see the different, just this one letter, the, the only benefit I think that is to you is simply to say, sometimes when you're reading your Bible, um, you miss one letter, you're going to miss the whole thing. <laughs> because uh, these, are, these are four different people, but their names are awfully similar. Okay, uh, absolutely worthless information. <clears throat> but um, back to some information that's not so worthless. Um, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders. This is, this is interesting, at least to me, because there is, um, there is a government of God's people being put in place at this earliest stage. God is going to work in his people through the elders. <clears throat> Guys, let me, let me give you a quick application. Um... Some of you don't realize that there is in the New Testament in Matthew 18, 
some instructions to do church discipline. You ever heard of those ugly terms? Church discipline. Now, what are the three steps of church discipline? A brother is overtaken in a fault, and what do we do? One of us goes to help our brother see his sin and hope that there will be repentance and he would come out of it. But he doesn't listen. So step two, this is all in the text, guys. You can see it in Matthew 18. The next step is that you take another with you, and you or two with you, and you plead with the brother, you're in sin, you can't do this, you got to stop, get out of it, uh, repent, yada, yada, yada. And so let's say he bows his neck and he's uh, stiff-necked and says, I'm not got anything to do with it. Do you remember what the third step is? You tell it to the church. Have you ever been in a meeting where someone was disciplined, where they, they notified the church in a public meeting? <laughs> Here, here's my point, guys. I've never been for that. I've never been for the public humiliation of someone in sin. And so I have always suggested, at least to our eldership, that when I tell the elders I've satisfied the provision of Matthew 18. Because to speak to the elders is to speak to the people of God. Like right here. That's the application. When, when all of this gets dumped on the people of God, it gets dumped on them at the eldership. Because that's the way that God governs his people. Is through this group of elders which i think um, and and so therefore i think it is far more kind to not take steps to humiliate in a church discipline case but it is also the way god works among his people is to speak to the elders of the church okay now just wanted you to see that now here's the Here's the thing that I think is the big takeaway of this passage, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it has to do with verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now here's my question for you. Did those people believe? Says they did. Certainly says that right there, doesn't it? Um, but what do we find less than a chapter later? Chapter 5, verse 21. You remember, uh, now these same people turn on Moses and they want to kill him. You know? Um, remember, they go to Pharaoh and, and, and say, let our people go. And Pharaoh says, oh, I'm not. So Pharaoh goes to his boys and he says, listen, these people are lazy. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, you know, make things harder on them. You know, don't, don't gather the straw for them anymore. Don't, don't do that anymore. Just make it hard. I mean, just make them work harder because they're lazy. You know, they've gotten lazy over the years. So let's just, so uh, that's what they do. They say, go get your own straw and make those bricks. And... Um, when the people see Moses again, they say to him, 
What have you done to us? We're now a stench in the nostrils of the Egyptians because of you. Now you tell me. Those people of chapter 4, verse 31, are they believers? <laughs> I don't know. But um, there's three things that I, wanna, I want you to think about concerning here they look like this, and here they look like this. Guys, three things. Number one, let me tell you what genuine saving faith is. First of all, uh, again, we, we can't figure out whether these people had it or not. But the real thing is not temporary. So if they had it over here in 431, excuse me, yeah, 431, then they've got it over here in 521. Because saving faith is, is permanent. It's not temporary. Um, that's the first thing that you need to know about saving faith. It's permanent. The second thing that you might need to know is that um, saving faith is, is the product of an exchange of a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. It's the exchange of the heart. It's a heart matter, ladies and gentlemen. So um, the real thing engages not your schedule, not your, um, your uh, what you do with your Sunday mornings. The real thing involves a change of your heart. But here's the third thing that I don't think I've ever mentioned this before in... Um, in a Bible study in, um, at Gracie Van. Um, here's another thing that characterizes the real thing. Um, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. <laughs> you know what's characteristic of the real thing? There's an eagerness to see Jesus get back. You have that. Or are you saying, Jesus, could you, could you delay this just a little bit because I really, there's some pleasures in this life that I really haven't had yet. And you know, I really like to have those. So you just hold on while I, and, um, and then when I get plenty old, and then you can come back. Is there in you some kind of eagerness to have Jesus come back? Because the real thing is, you know, I, I can say this. I, I think you, um, as things get so absolutely incredibly dark in our country, I think there probably is a greater eagerness Come, Lord Jesus, come now, come quickly before this thing deteriorates any further. But the people that Jesus is coming back for are people who are eagerly awaiting him. Now, here's, here's the second thing that I, 
and what, what I'm trying to do is use this, this question, 431, these people believed in him, and yet over here, they want to stone him. No, excuse me. They believe in, in what Moses has to say, but over here, they want to stone Moses. They want to kill it. Just trying to figure out, what is all that? Okay, guys, stay with me. What is different about the circumstances of 431 and 521? What's the difference? Hardship. Affliction. Over here in the sunshine? Oh, Moses, we're so glad to see you. Man, is it good to have you back. And, and what did you say? Yahweh's still thinking about us? Oh, is that? Oh, Moses, uh, uh, get on with it. Yay, Moses. <clears throat> but the thing that is so often used by God to, to demonstrate the reality of the real thing versus the false thing is hardship. By the way, guys, um, Jesus taught that very thing in uh, Mark chapter 4. Remember the, the parable of the four soils and the, um, the, the, the seed falls on some, some stony ground and Jesus says, you know, they spring up right away, um, but then um, they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Gang, um, tell me, by the way, if you're looking for a quick read that will absolutely turn you inside out, try to, try to, try to find this online and buy it. It's called Let Go by Fenelon. He's an old French mystic. But let me just warn you, the contents are drastic. It, it has to do with the self-life. And so if you want to address yourself, if you don't want to look at your self-life, don't buy this. But I mean, these are 40 letters. They're, you can read them in three minutes. You can read the whole book in probably 45. But get this. But anyway, tell me, um, what did Jesus say to his people? I mean, what did Jesus say? Did he say, if anyone will come after me, let him enjoy himself, let him be well-dressed, let him be drunk with happiness, let him be glad about his spiritual maturity, let him see how perfect he is in me, let him see himself and be confident that he is perfect. No, he never said anything, any such thing. On the contrary, his words are, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the thing that seems to separate the real from the phony is some kind of hardship. And that's what I think is happening here. And the, the hardship is separating the wheat from the chaff. Now, could I just add this and then one other thing I'm done. Uh, gang, we here at Gracie Van hold to several glorious doctrines, but one of those is what is known as eternal security. You Baptists have heard it called once saved, always saved, and I hate those words um, because it seems to open the door for loose living to me. But it's the truth. Eternal security is a better way to say it, in my mind. But that is true. 
if you were ever genuinely born from above, you are always going to be born from above, okay? But Christians, when they see somebody spring up and they join the church and they're teaching Sunday school and then something happens, their wife dies of a car wreck or, and then they fall away and they begin to wonder, wait a minute, I, I thought, I, I, I thought that, um, I, I thought if you were once saved, you were always saved. And so then they begin to question the whole doctrine of eternal security. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is very unfortunate. Jesus warned you this would happen. He warned you. He told you that it was going to happen. He said, people are going to, you know, they're going to hear the word and they're going to like it for a while. And they're going to think, "Woo, this is really fine what y'all got going over there. And boy, I really want to be a part of that. And then something's going to happen and they're going to disappear. And you're going to think, well, there couldn't be anything that's true called eternal security. Based on your experience. When Jesus told you, trying to prepare us for that very consequence, that very circumstance, that people would spring up like in 431, and they would say, yay, Moses. And then hardship would arise, and they would say, kill Moses. <laughs> Do not let that detract you from the beauties and the glories of eternal security. It's ours, ladies and gentlemen. Eternal security is ours. If you were ever born from above, you will always be born from above. Now, one other application, and I'm done. To... Um, to look at this application, I hope you got a Bible um, or um, that device invented by Steve Jobs. Um, <clears throat> I'd like for you to turn to 2 Samuel 22. Now remember, here's what I'm doing. I'm asking the people who responded in 431, we believe, and you see them doing otherwise in 521, were they genuinely converted? I don't know, but just some thoughts that swirl around that question. <clears throat> Guys, Psalm 22, excuse me, not Psalm, 2 Samuel 22 is a glorious piece of scripture. So glorious that when the, uh, the early Jewish church got together to put together a songbook, called the Psalms, they lifted this chapter from David and they put it in the Psalms, Psalm 18. They're almost identical. They are identical except in the spelling of certain words. So if you want to read 2 Samuel 22 again, just read Psalm 18, same thing, same words. <clears throat> Look at these words. Look at this this opening line, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am safe from my enemies. 
Is that not wonderful? I mean, look at all the things that he attributes to God. He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, uh, my refuge, my salvation, my shield, my stronghold, my savior. In the span of two and a half verses. Boy, wouldn't you like to be that, that spiritual? Where you could say something like this and you would really, uh, you know, mean it. Oh, this is who God is to me. He's my rock and my fortress and my deliverer and my... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could spend three or four Wednesday nights just looking at each one of those words. What is it that, it's a, what is it that he's a rock? I mean, you know, what is it that he's a refuge? Oh, I love that word, refuge. Now, that's how this Psalm 18 opens, and that's how this chapter opens. David wrote this. And um, if you look at Psalm 18, you'll notice it says when he was delivered from Saul. Uh, you know, David had run around the countryside, running away from Saul, and uh, finally he got delivered from Saul. And so he wrote this. And it is glorious. Glorious. Let me show you something else that's included in this passage and also Psalm 18 because they're identical. <laughs> look over to verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my sight, in his sight. Do those statements cause anybody in the room a bit of heartburn besides me? Why would they cause you heartburn? Does anybody in the room remember the name Bathsheba? Or how about the name Uriah the Hittite? For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn. What? His rules were before you, and you didn't turn from all of his statutes. <laughs> if somebody had come to David at this moment when he wrote this, right after he was delivered from Saul, and said to him, David, David, do you know that in the coming years you're going to commit murder and adultery? David would have said, oh, 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 oh you got to be kidding me. Me? Commit adultery? <laughs> Not me. No, sir, Rebob. I mean, the Lord is my rock and my shield and my deliverer. And murder? Don't you know that in the Torah that it says thou shalt not do any murder? All his rules are before me. And I wouldn't dream of doing something like that. Not me. Oh, 
But as you know, he did. So you go back to David um, when he wrote this. And, and I think we would all agree in this room that we're going to see David in heaven. So you go back to the, this earlier part of his life where David is saying all these wonderfully glorious, worshipful things. I mean, you want something to include in your quiet time tomorrow? Just read this. Just read the first three verses and, and spend an hour trying to figure out what rocks and, and refuges and, and strongholds do and that God is that to us. But when he wrote this, do you understand that at that moment, David had within him an enormous potential to sin. Now, I would, I'm just guessing here, but I'm not sure David knew that he had the kind of potential within him within that redeemed heart of his to do the things that trampled beneath his feet the very law of God. But he did. And so do you. You know, um, I've said this on numerous occasions in public. I mean, from that pulpit or this pulpit or one of them, I don't know. I have said, given the right set of circumstances, I could be an adulterer within 48 hours. And then I changed it to 24. Given the right set of circumstances, I could commit adultery in, within 24 hours. Given the right set of circumstances. You could too. You know, I, I say things like that, and they go, oh, oh, oh. I, you know, I remember I, I told you the story. I've told you this story before, but Steve Brown tells the story about, um, you know, he was always standing in the pulpit and telling his people how, how um, what a sinner he was. And so on one Sunday, um, he was telling everybody, you know, just what a potential he had for sin. And, and uh, somebody came up after him, and he said, you know, Reverend Brown, um, I've been hearing preachers all my life say that they, uh, they were big sinners. But you were about the first one I ever believed. <laughs> well, you can believe this one too. But gang, do you know it about yourself? You must know it. You must get it. Because it ought to produce certain things in us that are necessary for the safety of our souls. Number one, it ought to produce some humility. You mean to tell me that I could do that? Yep, that's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. 
then I'm not as hot shot as I thought I was, am I? No, you're not. Neither am I. None of us are. So it ought to produce a little bit of humility. And then another thing that I wish it would produce is the determination on our parts, your part, that I am going to be in the presence of God on a daily basis because I want to be reminded again and again and again that I have an enemy that can overthrow me. So, were the people of Exodus chapter 4 verse 31 genuinely converted? Well, when you look at them in 521, they sure don't appear to be and they sure did react horribly to affliction. So in that sense, you know, I don't think they were. And then when I read this, and I see what David did and what he wrote, and then what he went on to do, then I think, well, maybe they were. Either way, ladies and gentlemen, be warned. Not by me, not by the church. Be warned by the text. You could look like Mr. Spirituality, but a little pain could change that pretty quick. So, walk humbly and stay close. <laughs> Let's quit. Our Father, would you use uh, these considerations to... Um, Inform your people, but arm them as well. Might we all live this life with a healthy understanding of our own potential? And would you help us to avoid any, any small starting point that could lead to utter disaster? Would you help us to nip sin in its bud? knowing that we have such a potential. Use this model, Lord, from David to remind us that we are certainly not in his league except over our potential to sin. Lord Jesus, we love you. but We are sorry we love you so little. Would you grant us grace that we might love you more? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.